listener production. I learned a lot about Lawrence Lung in our conversation. The Melbourne-based comedian, writer and actor is someone who I have admired for a really long time. He is so funny. He's super engaging, as well as wise. He's kind of reflective on everything from representation to parenting. You can't repeat your early years with your kids again because, you know, that's their formative times. But as it turns out, he was once a teenage goth who wore all white makeup and an origami crow on his shoulder to high school parties. There was also that time he jumped out of a plane and completed a Rubik's Cube before engaging his parachute. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Later on, we'll be joined by Tate McGregor for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here's my chat with Lawrence Lung. Lawrence Lung, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. I am so happy to have you here. And I wanted to start by being a bit sneaky and going back in time and asking about you as a teenager. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So I want I want you to imagine one of those super cliched middle school, high school movies where every kid is a stereotype and there's the jock and the cheerleader and the goth and whatever. Which group would you have been best friends with at school? Where did you fit? Oh, I was definitely in the nerd group. The best group. Well, the nerd group and the goth weirdo group. You know how um, in The Breakfast Club how there was a... I think it was Ali Sheedy played this, um, the weird, quiet, strange goth girl. I was harboring goth tendencies and, you know, trying to write bad teenage (laughs) poetry, but I was definitely the nerd, had my Rubik's Cube, deck of playing cards, was really into filmmaking. Um, My friend and I, we were always trying to make short films on our like uh, old VHSC cameras and um, trying to make Indiana Jones films and uh, yeah, yeah, horror films. Um, joined the media club at school and, uh, yeah, so I was a big nerd, big, big nerd. Okay. I'm amongst my people, so that's good. But I want to know more about the goth tendencies. Were they just in terms of the bad poetry or like were there visual goth tendencies? Oh, wow. See, Jamil, you've gone into therapy land now. I, uh, had a phase where I wanted to be, um, you know the movie The Crow? I wanted to be Brandon Lee from that movie The Crow. Yes. The seminal um, kind of goth movie where he plays the spirit of vengeance. I remember going to a party um, dressed completely, you know, head to toe in black with the face, you know, makeup, the white makeup, and uh, it wasn't a fancy dress party. <laughs> okay, no, so this was just you in a look. This wasn't a costume. This is me uh, trying on something. <laughs> I don't think it worked, uh, whatever it was. Uh, I even had an origami crow. <laughs> oh, God. Because <laughs> I didn't have a black crow sitting on my shoulder. But yeah, sure. I, I made an origami crow and I had it uh, with me and I must say I wasn't particularly um, taken seriously at that party. No, I can imagine. When did you first realise you were funny? Because <laughs> being funny comes with power. I think especially when you're a kid, but more generally, like there's a there's a tension, there's influence, there's, you know, that joy of being able to make other people laugh. When did you first figure that out? Yeah, I mean, I didn't think that it was power when I was a kid, but I guess that's um, kind of part of it is the sense that you have control over your situation, especially when, you know, as a little kid, 
in primary school, I wasn't as big as the other kids. I was like, you know, very little tacker. And I found that if I made people laugh, people would really, really like me because I didn't have, you know, the sporty attributes. And and it really it really stops you getting teased from an early age if you're the smart ass in the class. Um, so I wasn't like the naughty smart ass, but I definitely loved doing a bit of slapstick. I remember um, one time a basketball hit me in the face and I thought it was just be a funny gag to just like fall over and act dead. And it caused a, a lot of problems because, you know, teachers would run over and I would keep the act on a little bit too long. And then I'd jump up and go surprise. And I thought it was a, a hilarious prank. Looking back on it now, it's not really that funny. It's kind of a little bit of a, a cry for attention, really. But at the time, I thought it was hysterical. Um, oh, yeah, my nose was bleeding as well. So <laughs> that didn't oh, help. Oh, no. <laughs> I think kids often don't know where to draw that line no. between funny and, and mean. <laughs> Imagine that yard duty teacher, right? <laughs> yeah, we, I didn't think it was mean at all. I, and, and we have no filter and we don't know how dangerous things are too. So my brother and I um, used to get inside suitcases and throw each other down the stairs and, you know, I wanted to be like a little Houdini and, you know, getting like those plastic toy handcuffs and jumping in a swimming pool, you know, stuff like that. Things that you look back on uh, now and go, I would never let my kids do that. <laughs> no, no, never in a million years. I think as kids we're taught that the most important thing to do is fit in and then yep. as adults we're taught to do the opposite, right, to like mark ourselves as special so that we sort of stand out from the pack. And it almost sounds to me like you were trying to do the standing out to fit in when you were at school. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Wow. You should be a therapist. Um, this is really making a lot of sense. And um, I'm going to write some poetry about it now. <laughs> I appreciate that. I will bill you $390 at the end of this. <laughs> maybe maybe my angsty goth poetry will come out again in, at this age now. <laughs> You're Asian Australian. I am too. And when I think back on being a teenager and even at university, I remember a sense of feeling just a little bit separate, not wholly separate. I don't think I was a kid who copped a lot of discrimination particularly, but I never felt like I was quite in. <laughs> I think there was a sense of otherness, yeah. um, particularly sort of late teens and early 20s. Was that something that it, you experienced? Yeah, I think all teenagers go through that sense of alienation at some point in their lives, but people from different cultural backgrounds to the mainstream definitely have another loading on top of that because there's the otherness to what is, you know, considered mainstream by not only their peers or the group in society and community in general. I mean, looking at television, for example, um, in Neighbours, there was an episode where there was an Asian family moving in, but... Um, as maybe your listeners know, it was a pretty racist portrayal because the plot line was essentially Buster the dog had gone missing. So they accused the Asian family next door who just moved in for barbecuing the dog, uh, Bouncer, the Bouncer, the dog named Bouncer. And it's not, uh, no. <laughs> not a great plot line back then and no. or ever. It's yeah, it's pretty bad. So, yeah, I guess that, you know, so growing up, um, I was kind of saw myself as because I was born here and I don't speak Cantonese very well and I didn't have many Chinese friends at the school that I was at. So I kind of saw myself as not really Asian like my parents um, and not really Anglo 
like my my friends. So I was kind of, I just saw myself as Lawrence. Tell me about you once you're at university. I, I know a lot of things drive people, but if you had to pick the primary driver for you in those uni days, was it good marks? Was it being in the comedy review? Was it getting really drunk at the university bar? What was your, what was your number one day to day? I think it was trying to find who I was um, because I gave it a red hot go in high school and I still couldn't figure out who I was. I mean, I was dressed up as Brandon Lee. That's who I was from the crow. <laughs> but at university, I kind of took it as, as a, a place where you can have a clean slate because no one knew who you were when you arrived. And, you know, people got over very quickly the what school did you go to? What was your TR? I don't know why people were asking that. Yeah. It was just a thing. People needed to form their own groups and their categories really quickly, I think, in their new social groups. And as someone who's kind of experienced being kind of on the outer, I really wanted to find who who my niche was. And I think I threw myself, I mean, I, I studied arts and sciences, so I had um, a psychology major as well as a cinema studies and creative writing majors sort of overloaded my university years and just basically uh, spend too long at university, but mostly because I wanted to do a lot of theatre. I was um, had a lot of co-curricular activities. I formed a theatre group um, with my friends and it was a improvisational comedy theatre troupe. We used to improvise full-length 30-minute sitcoms wow. uh, live on stage where the audience would like give us the setting like, oh, you're on a cruise ship and give us uh, the main character's uh, occupations and then would straight away jump into the theme song, even improvising commercial breaks and make it an exact half hour show, but live on stage as a a sitcom with those two plot lines that kind of intersected at the end and everything going crazy. Um, Yeah, that's where I cut my teeth doing comedy to begin with was... um, yeah, doing improvisational comedy with a group of idiots <laughs> um, called the Improbables. I love that. You're someone who, when I was doing my research for the show, you seem to have a bunch of projects on the go at once or you have through your career often had your finger in a whole lot of different pies. What about you makes it possible to A, manage all of that and also drives you to want to be doing lots and lots of different things at once? I think it's boredom, as in I know when I was a kid I would always keep changing hobbies. You know, I would turn up to school with like cassette tapes of me telling stories and doing essentially doing podcasts. Hey, I was an early podcaster (laughs) back then. Um, I I would have my own radio show that I would record onto tapes and give to people. And But then, you know, uh, the next week I would be doing sleight of hand card tricks. And so I, I constantly would always be changing Um, And the good thing about what I do with my career is that comedy isn't a medium, it's a genre. So you can sort of do storytelling and and jokes in all sorts of different sort of platforms. It all comes down to writing in the end and and connecting and communicating to people. And that's what I really love doing. So I don't think there's any particular drive. Like I haven't sort of set a pathway for myself. It was always kind of just following where my whims would be at that stage. Tell me about your thought process when you're writing something new. Because for me, it's this roller coaster of, oh, this might be good. Like, I think this is good through to self loathing and hatred and wanting to burn it. <laughs> and then kind of back to, oh, maybe it's good. And I can't decide. How do you write and how do you manage your 
headspace while you're writing? If I was to have a pie diagram with those things you just said there, I think 90% of my stuff is, I want to burn it. This is terrible. I should give up. Uh, This is the worst thing ever. Um, And 10% of me is like, it could possibly work, but maybe I don't know because, um, and then the 90% starts to take over. The only filter I have is what I would like to see as an audience member. And even then I know I can be wrong. Because, you know, not all audiences are for you and your work, but if you're true to yourself and, you know, you put it out there with, you know, the genuine heart of, you know, what you're trying to achieve, then that's a good thing. I mean, there are a lot of works that, you know, I've seen and I, that I've made, which, you know, it's extremely ambitious because, you know, you have an idea and you have a passion and there's a lot of things that you see out there, which are, I would, I would prefer to see people try and fail than do a half-hearted effort. Do you know what I mean? Like you want to see the best work comes out of um, a bit of perseverance. So you've got to speak to that inner sort of self-loathing and go, maybe I can use self-loathing as part of the creative process. It can be a, a, a good thing. Wow, this podcast has become like therapy. This is fantastic. <laughs> I didn't mean it to, I promise. You're the, no, you're the one that did it's psychology. <laughs> You've performed on some really big stages around the world, even here at home, you've performed at the Opera House, you've performed at London's Soho Theatre. There's some not only big crowds in the sense that you've got a lot of people packed in a theatre, but big stages in the sense that there's a lot of history and grandeur and status associated with them. Do you still get nervous? Mm, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All the time, even with small gigs that aren't, you know, you know, on on a grand stage, I, I still get nervous all the time. I think it's because if you don't have the butterflies in your belly, it means you don't care. Well, that, that's for me anyway. I feel like if I am nervous, it means that I care about the gig and that's the first step uh, for me anyway. And so I always get nervous before going on a stage. But, you know, I like to peer through the curtain first and look out there and just realise that, you know, this is a pretty awesome job when, I, when I'm doing, you know, stand-up comedy or, you know, live shows. It's... You know, I get to stand up there and uh, put my brain out onto the stage for people to hopefully feel happy or learn some stuff. And it's a privilege to be on stage. So I have to remind myself that they're not there to hate you. They're there to be entertained. So they're your mate. You know, let's just get out there and pretend you're telling a story to pub and jump on a stage. So that's how I calm myself self down from the nerves. But I remember the first time I did a did stand up, I was so terrified because I hadn't done it before. And I always wanted to. The very first gig was at a, it was like an open mic night at a place called King of the Ring. And the, the prize was a cheap bottle of some god awful wine. The MC mispronounced my name. Oh. They called me Lance Long. So I didn't even know they were talking about me. So by the time I realized they were announcing me on stage, the goodwill opening applause died. It was just complete silence. So I ran to the stage um, and I tripped on the steps leading up to the microphone and I face planted, uh, got the biggest laugh of the night. And that that's all I needed. That first big laugh. Yeah. I told myself if people aren't laughing in the first 15, 20 seconds, I've, that's it. I failed as a stand-up comedian. I will never try doing it again. 
And before I even uttered my first word, I already had them in stitches. And I think that sealed the deal. I, I felt so much more relaxed after that. And I ended up getting that cheap bottle of wine. That's how that started off in, in the stand-up side of my life. You are a dad to two kids. Tell me about finding out for the first time that you were going to be a dad. Was it scary? Was it exciting? Was it all of it? Yeah, I was really excited, but, you know, and also terrified. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. My kids, like I look at them now, then they, they, they just grow up so quickly because now they're, I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Especially now that we're coming out of a lockdown, I can think about the potential of them to do stuff now, mm. <laughs> do stuff more than just be around the house. That's the, the difference between when you first find out that you have a kid. I think for me it was like, oh, the fear was, who am I going to be as a dad? Like, can I do this? Who am I going to be as a dad? I don't think about that as much anymore as who are they going to be as people? Yeah. I can't wait to see and find out who, who they become. Yeah, I think the emotion has kind of changed from like, fear, apprehension, excitement, all the way to, oh, what are they going to be now? So, um, yeah, it's awesome, especially now that lockdown's done. It's like, let's unleash them into the world and, and, and let them, you know, play and, and discover things and be able to talk to people and what is it like to sit down at a cafe again, you know? <laughs> Tell me how you balance comedy stuff, not now, obviously, but pre-COVID, how do you balance a busy schedule where you've got filming, you've got stand-up, you've got all sorts of things going on, it's a strenuous career, and then you've got little kids and big commitments to your family and responsibilities. How do you make all of that work together? Oh, barely. <laughs> it's very difficult. But, you know, you, you can't have, you can't repeat your early years with your kids again because, you know, that's their formative time. So, you know, you have to sort of adjust your priorities and work out, you know, what are the things that you want to uh, do and, and not sacrifice too much either way in both work and also with your family. You know, what what COVID has done is it definitely has removed, say, the live performance side of my work, but then it means that I get to see my kids day to day more. You know, at the same time, I've sort of done a lot of pivoting. I can, I've done a lot more performing online um creating brand new shows that would just for zoom and and so and also doing a lot more writing for television so i've been able to sort of juggle and manage time you know with my family but also with work with the situation of the world as it is so um it's always been tricky but i think like i was saying earlier with um comedy being a genre i've been trying my best to try to to slip and slide between different mediums to be flexible enough to honour both my work and my family and, and the time that we have, you know, on this planet. <laughs> and I, I feel like um, the community should, should realise how important it is to have these things because, you know, the world can't be all about horse racing, building bridges. It's also about, you know, the communication and people laughing in rooms together dancing <laughs> and seeing some, you know, really great storytelling. Lawrence, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. And I know there are a lot of people listening who are looking forward to being back in a room together, laughing with yeah. you super soon. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you for all the therapy today. It was wonderful, Jamila. Anytime. You can see uh, Anna at reception on the way out and she'll sort out your <laughs> Medicare rebate. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> 
That's it for my conversation with Lawrence Lung. Like so many comedians, he has been trapped inside and unable to perform on stage for going on 18 months now. So when that changes, which it will very, very soon, we all have to show up, show our love and help the comedy community get back on their feet. Don't go away. Tate McGregor will be here in just a moment for The Weekend List. Tate McGregor is in the studio and today she has got some mighty fine recommendations for you all. What have you got, Tate? I want to start off with a music recommendation as per usual. This is from an artist I may have mentioned already. Her name's Remy Wolf and she's just put out her debut album, Juno. So she's a Californian psychedelic hyper-pop performer who went viral for her hit Photo ID and now she's just released a 13-track collection of equally rambunctious songs. What I really like about her is that her sound is like almost a fluorescent colour. It's really maximalist, it's really layered and kooky and fun, but if you listen deeply, her lyrics are actually pretty dark. She talks about her sobriety journey, mental health, sexuality, and it's just like a really interesting collection and I think she'll have a really important influence on the pop music landscape. So I recommend Remy Wolf's debut album, Juno, which you can stream everywhere. Jam, what are you up to? What are you recommending? Tate, I want to recommend a biography of someone who a lot of us see every day on the TV, but perhaps don't know a lot about, and that is Lisa Miller, who is one half of the co-hosting team of the ABC's New Breakfast. Her memoir is called Daring to Fly, the TV star on facing fear and finding joy on a deadline. This is a really beautiful read. Lisa can really write. It is a story of her life, but it is based very much around flying and aeroplanes. Lisa developed a completely debilitating fear of flying when she was working as a foreign correspondent. The three decades as a journalist witnessing tragedy came at a cost and this this sort of ever escalating fear of flying threatened to rob her of her ability to do a job at all. So this is a gorgeous book. In the end, Lisa does tackle that fear of flying, but she also talks about loss and she talks about family. She talks about growing up in country Queensland as a little girl who dreamed of a really big life. And she talks about pushing yourself towards what you want and the realisation that comes sometimes that all you really need is what you have. And I think right now, having spent a whole lot of time locked down in our homes wishing for more, this is the kind of affirming read that all of us need. Put it on the top of the pile then. I want to recommend a watch for you, Jam. This is a show that came out in 2018, but I think it's still worth mentioning. It's called Barry. I've only just dipped my toes in. And it's created, produced, written by, occasionally directed, and stars Bill Hader, who you might know from Saturday Night Live, Trainwreck, uh, super bad, the comedic genius. This is like a dark comedy series and it focuses around the main character, Barry. He's a hitman who travels to Los Angeles to kill someone, but finds himself in an acting class and actually really enjoys it, which sets him on this journey of questioning his life's destiny, essentially. It's 
dark. It's funny. It's just like this really weird take on comedy. It's won two Emmy Awards, so you know it's going to be good. It's got two seasons out, and I'm pretty sure there's a third on the way. But it's called Barry, and you can watch it on Binge. Come on, bro. You, me, Team Badass. You don't want to be a part of this? Oh, Barry, it's about to go off. Thanks, Tate. And I have got one more for all of the cooks out there. Now, this is one that's going to freak people out and you're going to think you can't do it. It is deceptively easy. It is actually very doable. I had a friend who was going through a really tough time last week and I decided to send her an extravagant cake. Tate, have you ever seen those cakes in cake shops that look like giant cookies in the shape of like a letter or a number? And then they've got like cream between lots of layers and then they're just covered with stuff like macarons and meringues and lollies and chocolates and swirls and stuff. They're very Instagram- worthy. Now it sounds literally impossible. It is not. There is such a good recipe on the website, thecookingfoodie.com. You can just search for number cake recipe or letter cake recipe. It teaches you step-by-step how to make those big cookie shaped numbers and letters, how to put them together in like a layer with the creamy feeling. And then you just go nuts like a kid in a candy store on the top. You don't have to be fancy or have some artistic eye or be a good baker. You just shove everything yummy ever on the top. They look so good. They look super impressive. And my friend who was going through a really rough patch, massively appreciate it. You can eat it with your eyes and you can eat it with your stomach. That's what all I want in a cake. Exactly. That's all we've got time for on the weekend briefing. I want to say a massive thank you to Tate McGregor. This is her second last episode of the weekend briefing. She is going on to bigger Not better, definitely not better, but she's going on to bigger things, folks. She was always too fancy and impressive to last here. But thank you for all your incredible work, my friend, not just on recommendations, but behind the scenes. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode of The Weekend Briefing, then you need to follow us. You can find us in the listener app or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning at 6 a.m., with the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Bye. Listener.